action fans everywhere. Once again, the eternal battle between the good guys and the bad guys is coming. What side are you on? Which crowd do you applaud? Are you for the guys in the back room with the clouded cigar smoke? Or are you for those guys who come descending out of vast cloud of heaven, bearing doves on each shoulder? I'm forever blind. You're already out there? You ready for it? Oh, what a great... Oh, there's something... You know, there's something... Uh, I just have to be perfectly frank with you. That there's something about hot summer weather that stirs some deep-down, undiscovered, uh, uncategorized, unmedical, defined gland somewhere inside of me that brings out... I don't know whether I'm, I'm alone. I don't think so, because there's a wild look in the eye of many people. It's the summer madness. And uh, do you feel it? Is that all done? <laughs> well, then I'm sorry for you. Then, then you might as well just pack it in, because uh, it's there. You know, speaking of summer madness, here I have a little note for uh, uh, attention, all XGIs. Listen carefully here. We have a little note here that might be of some significance to you. I have a little thing here. It was sent to me by an official type spy, one of our spies out there, and uh, sent me this. Uh, Official, uh, it looks like an industrial newspaper. And down at the bottom it says here that uh, Camp Crowder, for any of you, whoever at Camp Crowder, I think eventually uh, all those things and all those little dreams that we all have finally do come true if we stick with it long enough and we got enough, uh, you know, we got enough pizzazz just to hang in there. Uh, here it's a, a note about Camp Crowder. For any of you, whoever were at Camp Crowder, it says the former Military reservation, Camp Crowder, military reservation, a miles by five miles south of friendly little Neosho, Missouri, has now been turned into the Water and Sewage Technical School. It's now on the side of well, the old 830. There you go, gang. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, in a way, its function has never changed. It always had a little of that element to it. And the uh, I just thought that any of you ex-Camp uh, Crowder types might uh, be interested to know what's happening out at, out at the old post. I got up there. All right, uh, Don. And by the way, keep, hold that uh, little star. Oh, no, I'll tell you what. Keep the second cut, uh, uh, the one on the, uh, the fire turntable, because I'm going to use that. It'll be number. It, it's uh, the one that I told you. Okay, I'll send it there. Just hold it there. Yeah, that's right. And just not yet, not now. When I give you the cue, all right? Okay. You know, it's funny uh, when you you take a look at a at a place name. It's it's uh, it's kind of kind of scary. The things that will create all those images and our life. You know, somebody somebody today made a a flat statement to me, which I will have to report to the audience to the fellow sufferers out there. And uh, this person said to me, "Wouldn't it be great if you could erase your life?" And, and she was serious, you know, she really meant it. She said, wouldn't it be great if you could erase uh, your past? Just erase it like a big tape recorder. Now, that's a very interesting philosophical question, you know. <laughs> we could get really, we could really have a, we could really have a deep, long, involved, a deepie on that subject, you know, whether or not uh, you could and exist, or whether or not it would be uh, a good thing, whether or not you could... Uh, conceivably tolerated if you could somehow erase your past life. 
Now that's that's a very interesting question, you know. And immediately everybody is inclined to come up, you know, with a with a snap answer. Oh yeah, oh boy, I sure would do that. Or else they say uh, with a snap answer. Oh no, no, of course not, of course not. Well, now that question is not so easily answered. <laughs> Can you imagine though what kind of a person would suddenly develop? Now let's think about it from from the standpoint of a hey that would make a great basis for a science fiction story. No, well I'm not going to write it. We're going to write science fiction, but it would make a great basis of a science fiction story if a guy working in some laboratory somewhere came up with some kind of an electronic device or chemical device something that would enable you if you wanted to. It would enable you to submit yourself to this machine. And it would erase effectively your past life. Now, it wouldn't erase any knowledge you have. In other words, if you learn to be an engineer or if you've learned how to read. I don't mean uh, erase all the technical skills that you've amassed, but erase your life, which is a separate thing. You know, you can go, you can go for nine years to medical school and you can absorb all this medical technique, you see, but your life is being lived outside of that. Your real life. You know, you walk around, you hit people, you yell. You get into trouble, you you know, you lose everything you got at the races and all that scene. Uh, that's your life, you know, on one side. The rest of it is the technical skill that you have absorbed in becoming a, an operating human being. Now, my question is this. Wouldn't it be interesting if somebody were to contrive a machine that could effectively erase from your memory all of the life that you have lived except the technical skills that you've learned. In other words, at the age of 25, we'll say, they plug you in, they turn the thing on, the light's light, the, the thing hums, and it, uh, there's, a, there's a faint tingling sensation, and then you, you have a, a brief uh, paroxysm of, uh, of uh, muscle leapings, and uh, they, they, they have to put cold compresses on your head for half an hour, and they give you a shot to bring you to, and then you arrive back on this plane, on this planet, you arrive a totally erased person. Totally erased. Now, <laughs> now that's not quite the same as a man suffering amnesia, you see, because amnesia is a problem that has uh, other, other things going for it. This is a way of erasing your life. Now, I, I wonder what kind of person this would create. What kind of a, what kind of a, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I wonder another thing, and this is, a, this is a, even a more interesting question to me. Given this reality, see, we, uh, I'm sure that most people will say, ah, come on, I wouldn't do it. Or they will say, yeah, wow, man, because it's impossible. You see, they know secretly, anybody who comes up with a snap answer like that, secretly knows that this isn't going to happen. He totally knows this. So it's easy to come up with an answer like that. What if tomorrow morning there was an ad in the New York Times, a full page back page that says, Tired of your rotten life? Does your past bug you? Are you, uh, are you spending all your time on a couch? Do you find yourself breaking at the tears uh, when you're hiding behind the water cooler at the office without any uh, reason for doing this? Well, we are now offering a system absolutely guaranteed, totally tested, tried and true, for $1,000, you can erase your entire past life. I wonder how many people would show up. And by the way, here's the sad fact of it. If they did erase the past life, it would not... The, you know, the most people, I'm sure, when they think of an idea of erasing their past life, they think of emerging a new person. 
they think of suddenly now they're new. That's a new new person now. I'm sorry. <laughs> you would be the same klutz you always were, and I, I have a suspicion you might be doomed to repeat all the stuff which ultimately you paid a thousand dollars to erase. You'd start all over again. You know the whole scene. You'd start. Uh, I, I, oh, there's 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 that idea. Then there's then there's another thought. Of course, uh, that goes on and on. You know that this that this uh, this uh, philosophical concept has from time to time popped up in the writings of philosophers. That uh, when a man, in fact, there there is one philosopher who made the statement that a man is better off the day he dies than the day he was born. Now, now wait a minute. Think about that for a minute. Uh, don't be inclined to just uh, whip up a snap answer. Oh, what do you mean? What is this uh, cockamamie talk? No, there, there is a. This is what's called philosophy. Of course, <laughs> that's not that's not something that everybody studies. But all these these uh, abstract ideas floating in 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 air there are the things which ultimately, literally, do bug us uh, on a, on a very low basic plane. You know, I think this is one of the lures that most people find in communism. One of the subtle little lures. They think that if somehow there were laws passed and everybody was uh, now arbitrarily equal and everybody would uh, share everything equal, that they then would be as good as everybody else. Uh, you know, <laughs> this is this is a this is a very interesting. Uh, I think one of the deep psychological lures for something like totalitarianism. Uh, that that uh, you know, this is one one of the things I found in the army too. And I don't want to go back. Uh, this is not an army night, but it's an interesting thing that you find in the army that many guys like the army because the army gives them a sense of anonymity. It uh, you know, if if uh, the guy spends all his time in Griffith, Indiana, and he's the tall, skinny guy with pimples and hangs around in front of the pool room, and he hasn't had a date in seventeen years, and nobody you know cares one way or the other. All of a sudden, he's got this brown suit on. He's with 16 million other guys, and he has no responsibility. He can always feel that the system is against him, else he would be a first sergeant. The system is against him, or else he would have made first lieutenant. There's a, there's a nice cop-out, a lot of cop-outs in the Army. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a great cop-out world. You know, speaking of cop-outs, the, the drive towards anonymity. You know, people talk about conformity. I don't think these words have any meaning any longer. I don't think that people are conforming when they're when they're uh, driving towards what is generally called in writing conforming conformism. I think they're driving towards something subtler than that, and that is anonymity. You know, we always talk about how people all today uh, everybody is bugged because he's not an individual, and that everybody is uh, is having trouble uh, establishing his identity. I think one of the real things that people are afraid of is doing exactly that. Establishing an identity, or or becoming not a uh, a mass man, you know, unit in this fantastic thing, but becoming an individual. That's a very scary thing because that's dangerous, you know. When you're an individual, you've got you got to look out. You know, there's a lot of problems going with being an individual. We've always been a herd animal, anyway, you know, and uh, being a herd animal uh, has had its. Uh, Value. Uh, I mean, the people, the first 16 guys that gathered together in a cave, it was quite obvious that one or two of them were much more able to fend with the jungle than the other 12. 
And so it was certainly up to the, uh, it was to the benefit of the other 12 if somehow they could convince the other two that we all ought to be together in this thing. So, so uh, ultimately, uh, the, the, I, I suspect that the, the, oh, well, the newsroom, is John Wingate ready? Okay, John, let's hear what's happening out there on the election front. John Wingate, WOR Radio News, the primary election results we cover. Let's go to headquarters of Justice Samuel Silverman, who is Robert Kennedy's man for a Manhattan surrogate Democratic nomination. Lester Smith, what's the word? We're finding an upswing in the mood of optimism here at Silverman headquarters. Justice Silverman has reportedly taken a number of Manhattan districts in the Washington Heights area, which he was not expected to win. In addition, reports continue to come in that the vote in the reform areas has run substantially ahead of that in other parts of the city. And, of course, it is in those reform areas where Justice Silverman presumably would have his greatest support. One member of the Silverman staff said just a short time ago that if the vote runs between 100 and 110,000, it'll still be a very tough, close race. On the other hand, he felt very strongly that a vote of over 110,000 votes would virtually assure a Silverman victory. The Silverman staff at the moment is making no claims, but they are heartened by a number of developments, such as the Washington Heights turnout and the voting in the reform districts. Lester Smith reporting. Back now to John Wingate in the news. And apropos of your report, Lester, we understand that one network computer has just about predicted a Silverman victory. I'll only add that this was the same network computer that made a mistake the last election night and spent six hours backtracking all over the place. We'll stay with your report, and the computers can stay with themselves. But there looks to be a strong trend for Samuel Silverman, State Supreme Court Justice, who is Robert Kennedy's man and the Reform Democrats' man for Democratic nomination for Manhattan surrogate. His opponent, of course, is Arthur G. Klein, who's an old-line Democrat, also a State Supreme Court Justice, all along, the Kennedy forces have charged corruption and a great gravy pool operating there in the surrogate system. That's where you file your probate when you die in New York. Now, to give you the other side of the story, the Klein forces and the regular Democrats have charged interference by Robert Kennedy. Much of the Klein campaign literature has said that Kennedy is a man of what they call ruthless ambition. And only last evening, Justice Arthur Klein at a dinner said, I quote, Why, he'd cut the throat of my dear friend Hubert Humphrey. End quote. But at the moment, based on WOR's Lester Smith's report, Samuel Silverman seems to be running strong. We'll make no predictions. We do have this, Steve Deronian, conservative-minded Republican who doesn't like to appear to be so conservative, is in in Nassau County, and he goes in by a better than two-one sweep over William J. Casey. With most of the votes in, Deronian, making his comeback, is in in Nassau County. There are only two districts in Oyster Bay unreported, so Steve Deronian has it there, and WOR News declares him the winner. We don't make predictions, we just declare the winner when he's in. Stay tuned to 710 on your dial for complete coverage of the important primary, with the focus being here and nationally on that really fierce battle for Manhattan surrogate Democratic nomination. Does Robert Kennedy's man go in, and do the old line Democrats go out? That we'll know between now and, say, 1 o'clock this morning. John Wingate here. Let's go back to Gene Shepard. Well, thank you, old John. And this is WORAM and FM here in New York. Oh, that, uh, uh, <laughs> one of the funniest unconscious, I, to me, uh, elections generally are, are uh, 
They're, they're, as a matter of fact, if you look at them one way, they're far funnier than anything W.C. Fields ever did. And, uh, and, and the idea of one politician calling another politician ambitious somehow has, has elements of high comedy to me. <laughs> I mean, isn't, isn't it, uh, you know, to me, it would seem to me that, uh, that to define a politician is to define a man who's ambitious. I mean, it takes a certain amount to, of ambition just to go out there and say, vote for me, friends. You know, I'm great. Put me in and it'll all be great. <laughs> I wonder how it... You know, speaking of, of politicians and and, and, uh, and elections, I just thought, while listening to this, I just thought of a another plot for a, a science fiction movie. Now, perhaps... or It would, it would even be better as probably as a, as a short story. You're probably aware today that most elections are really... Uh, created by the news media, uh, that, that uh, people walk around the streets, you know, there's just a general ho-hum atmosphere, you know, ho-hum, you know, you know, especially when it's something like a primary or something like that, but, but the news mediums, they go ape over them, I tell you, they're fantastic, it's just, you, you just wouldn't believe it, the, they run around and they get their little uh, mobile cars out and everybody gets his tape recorders out and there's a whole big shlumuha and a big magilla. And they all go. They all go rushing out to the various headquarters. Well, I could just see this now. This big, there's signs all over. You know, it says "Vote for, vote for Watanabe." You know, and uh, "Vote for Charlemagne the Elder." Big sign over here says "Vote for Ethelred the Bald." And they're all they're all running. It's a fantastic election going on. <laughs> and all the newsmen are on edge. You know, boy, they're reading on top of it. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, most newsmen today secretly will con- concede that uh, that it's not the politicians that are running; it's them. And uh, the the big argument is whether Walter Cronkite on any given night did better than David Brinkley, uh, and and I think I think one of the reasons that a lot of people are are bugged by computers, uh, which always comes up during the election, is that the computers aren't as cute as Huntley. Uh, that when they say we now take you to RCA computer number seven twenty two GT, they switch and there's that black panel there with a lot of meters and the thing you keep going and and it's not very cute. And IBM and NCR and these people are beginning to take moves now, which I think could be revolutionary in the whole man-machine relationship. And they're making, uh, instead of making man in the image of the machine, which for a long time they tried to do, now they're trying to make the machine in the image of man. And have you gone past any of the showrooms where they're showing the new computers? Let me tell you, it's pretty hard to, to tell a crowd of computers in a window there where it says for sale, from a gang of Rotary Club members who are meeting in Teaneck to celebrate the election of their new vice president. No, they're so cute you can't you can't really uh, you can't resist them. And ultimately, they will put sex appeal in the commuters too. And that's going to be the day when when uh, when this poor battered little live reporter says, "Now we switch you to." And of course, the, the numbers the numbers are, uh, that goes against them too. Uh, the idea of naming a computer with a number is never going to make it very loved. Uh, if David and if Huntley and Brinkley and Kunkley or whatever their names are, David and Chet, had numbers like 17, 22, and 3806, I don't think they would have achieved what they have achieved. And, you know, general lovability and also general uh, public reliance upon whatever it is they say. Now, if you can name your computer, say, Davy, we now take you to Davy. Over in room 14, come in, Davy, please. And on comes this very cute computer. You know, it winks a little bit. The lights wink. 
and it hums. It, it only it hums. It hums. Instead of that, you know the hum they got. It's going. And and as as the uh, and it, it chuckles once in a while when the data is fed into it. I think that's what we would like a, a machine to chuckle a little bit. Either that or it snorts derisively. And so the the of course what it's snorting at is a ridiculous man voting for this clots. Uh, who is obviously winning? See, so in comes in comes all the data. See, and the machine is going. <coughs> and they read it down the bottom. Says, and, and, and Charles Wananabe is now leading his opponent by sixty-eight thousand votes to two hundred and twenty-seven. And then they switch away. See, and then they take you to a left wing. Uh, I think. Uh, you're going to have to wind up eventually, really, with computers that are oriented left wing, right wing, middle ground. Uh, then there will be the Olympian computer that does nothing, doesn't even deal with such basic mundane issues as left and right, but talks about the overall meaning to mankind of tonight's big election. And, <laughs> no, I, I uh, here's, oh, you want to hear the story, of my, my idea for a basic plot? Okay. It's an, it's an election set in the future, the near future, see, and all the radio reporters have gotten all their little, their little the machines already, you know, the tapes. They've got 16 million miles of tape all set. We've got the lines in, and, and all the radio stations are there. Have, did you notice that last time, I think for the first time, for the first time, uh, the, the, uh, the candidate was totally inundated by reporters. Do you remember when Lindsay was elected? Did you, you remember that scene? Now, now, come on, try to use what little memory you've got left in the 20s and try to turn back to those ancient days of the first of the year when Lindsay was elected. That's a long time ago, I know, for you to remember in this hard-hitting, day-by-day, fantastic world. But uh, if you recall the scene, Lindsay, remember Lindsay came down into the ballroom or wherever it was, and here there were 48 million guys. You couldn't see anything. All of them, and microphones and numbers, they had call letters, the whole thing, and, and you could see a foot once in a while stick out, or a hand waving, and occasionally you'd hear a, you know, a gasp for water or something. You remember that scene? And there were photographers and everything. So you began to see, and oh, they would not move either. That was the whole point. He kept saying, move aside. Ah, move, what do you mean? Move. You're only the candidate. Stop it. I'm Gabe. Uh, I'm Pressman. You don't tell Gabe. I'm, I'm, I'm John Wigan. I'm, what do you mean, move aside? And, and so ultimately, it was the candidate who had to move aside. You remember they finally, he says he had to give up, and he went, <laughs> you notice none of the reporters left, though, see, because they knew what an election is about. It's about ratings, and that's about a lot of other things, see. So, so here, here's, here's what I would, I, I propose as a plot. It's a great, it's, uh, my show is called The, The Day It Happened, or The Day The Bronx Didn't Report In. And, uh, here, here they're all set, and they say the election will be over at 10 o'clock, or, Five o'clock or six o'clock, and all the radio channels, all the TV channels, immediately switch to their computers, and they switch to the guys that are out there in the remote unit. And uh, the guy sitting back in the studio says, "And now for the first returns of the election, we're always first. We're right. We're on top of it. Here we now we take you to Charlie Watanabe, who is now on the headquarters floor of Charlemagne the Third. And it looks like Charlemagne the Third. The, the, the signs are now beginning to be quite plain that this is going to be a very close election. Take it away, Charlie." And you're, Here's the, the mobile unit. Ah, Charlie, what an army you're reporting. And uh, we're here for four and a half minutes now. And there's a little confusion on the floor, ladies and gentlemen. A little confusion on the floor. Uh, no reports have yet come in. 
no one has voted yet in Manhattan. And uh, so with that much we can say here, the candidate is resting. We now switch you back to Central Headquarters. Take it away, Huntley. Huntley, Central. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we just come from uh, Ethelred the Reddy's headquarters. We just called him on the phone, and uh, apparently no one voted in that precinct over there. And uh, we will now take you... Uh, what do you mean in the control room? Uh, uh, nothing is happening yet at the Hunter at the Balls headquarters? I see. Uh, and they stand around, and it turns out that not one single person has voted. No returns. It was the day, finally, that the news media and the candidates and the, and the parties have all floated out to sea, all by themselves, and left poor, groveling mankind far behind, that no longer does it care, no longer does it even bother. And, and chant one little cheap Jack Channel, way down at the end, <laughs> one little channel who was so cheap that it couldn't buy lines to election headquarters, is running an old... Priscilla Lane movie, and the rating over there is 16,942. It was the day that I... Give me a little Stars and Stripes there, will you please? Stars and Stripes, Tom? Good. We salute that day. <laughs> oh, yeah. The day that it happened was brought to you in widescreen erotic color. Produced by George L. Washington. Directed by Thomas Aquinas Jefferson. Scenic design by Fred Socrates. This is a Vox Populi Neo Nisi Bonum production. Brought to you through the courtesy of the non Compass Metis production staff. Stay tuned for further bulletins on the hour, every hour, 24 hours a day, 465 days a year. We're the only station that gives you 100 extra days. And 14,000 extra bulletins, therefore. A man must be in touch with his world to understand his world. <laughs> Isn't that right, gang? Oh, you're so right, gang. Remember one thing, the gang is always right. Like they say, 50 million Frenchmen can't be wrong. Oh, boy. <laughs> and certainly 200 million Americans can't be. There's four times as many Americans as Frenchmen. Must be four times writer. Mind if I sit here with you guys? That's enough. We got the... I guess we covered the election. Let's see. We've got a couple of uh, news notes here and a couple of whoopies. Will you hit the whoopee button, please, Donald? Dear Americans, I'm here to tell you about honor. 
many years ago, the people of Cinzano decided that Italian grapes were fine for Cinzano sweet vermouth, but just not dry enough for Cinzano dry vermouth. They insisted that Cinzano French dry vermouth would make a drink taste nice, very nice. For being born Italian and letting a Frenchman make their dry vermouth, the people of Cinzano were bitten by the dogs, fed the mushy spaghetti by their wives, and... It treated them not very good. But in their poor, honorable hearts, they knew that Cinzano French driver mood was the best driver mood. My American friends, after all of that trouble, what do you know about Cinzano, huh? That we make ashtrays. Americans, you're some friends. Imported by Shefflin and Co., New York. Very good, very good. That was well done. Let's see, we have Rover. No, that's, you just hang in there. I've got a couple of others here. We've got Rover, the Rover 2000 TC. By the way, uh, have any of you seen the movie Born Free? Uh, I, I saw it, oh boy, three months ago in a preview. And let me, you know, that is one of the eeriest movies I've ever seen from a technical standpoint. I'm not talking about eerie uh, in a... Uh, in any of the, other than that, it's hard to believe that such a movie could have been made. No, really. Did you read the book, Born Free, the one of the lioness? Uh, and they have created this thing. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, I really could not believe that, uh, that, that uh, you could make, could create a movie on the premise of a lion growing up. And incidentally, uh, the reason I bring that up at this point is that one of the primary elements in this movie is a car. And the, you see this car all over. Every place you look in the movie, there's this car going over the veldt, going through the jungle, uh, going down the roads in Africa. If you want to see pictures of how Africa really looks, as opposed to the old Tarzan idea of what Africa looks like, this is a superb way to do it. But the car is a Land Rover, which uh, if you get out of the urban areas of, of, uh, of America, if you get to places like Nigeria or India, or places like, uh, oh, uh, well, I saw a whole slew of them, for example, in the Negev Desert. They're used in the desert a lot. The Land Rover is one of the stars of this movie. And in the entire movie is this lion sleeping on top of the Land Rover as they go whistling over the veldt. And uh, the, it's uh, it incidentally adds a great deal to the picture. There's, there's a strange kind of a, of a reality to the car. The car becomes a character. And this is the Land Rover that we've been talking about. They're the same people that make the Rover 2000. And I don't, uh, I don't know, there's a, uh, there's a funny thing about cars and people when you have to depend on them. Uh, I suppose people in New York, I, I, I think that most writers, most guys live in urban areas. This is, the commercial is long since over, okay? That most people who live, now I've, I've really wondered about that machine man relationship a great deal uh, I've thought about it and I, I know a lot of my friends who live right here in midtown Manhattan are very uh, they're, they're very put down about the automobile to them the automobile is a ridiculous silly crotch of the people what do you mean it's a ridiculous thing you know, who needs a car well, of course he says this because he lives on 14th street and uh, you know who needs a car when you live in the center of the universe I mean who needs to go any place now that's a, that's a valid question 
when when uh, when an automobile really is a drag on a person, as it is quite often here in New York City, unless you rush out and get a cab and jump in and give the guy a buck and uh, forget the car the minute afterwards. It's purely utilitarian in New York City. And and uh, I wonder how many people know the uh, the peculiar interrelationship that exists between the machine and man, where the man depends so fantastically on the machine that his life is literally almost non-existent in some areas without that machine, without that car, that that thing that that liberates him. It's like a liberator, you know. It liberates him from. And I think that the real essence of freedom, to me is mobility uh, to be able to move now mobility is, has a lot of philosophical connotations to be able to move uh, to be mobile politically in other words to, to be able to, to be free to think politically that's a kind of mobility to be able to move uh, bodily this is mobility and freedom too uh, and it's uh, to me it's fascinating to see how many countries are called free and yet none of their people can get out of them. They can't get out of those countries at all. <laughs> and yet the, the apologists for these countries will call them free countries. And it doesn't seem to me to be, uh, it's, it's uh, one of the great uh, paradoxes. It's kind of a, uh, a self-defeating thing. And yet uh, getting back to the car, the thing that the automobile does to many people is it, it gives them that kind of mobility. The kind of mobility that is, because uh, I think freedom is a, is a, is a many-faceted thing. You, you should not only have freedom of your mind, you should also have it of your body. Uh, and and we, often, we often fail to realize that the bodily side of freedom is very important too. And in many cases, as important as the philosophical freedom. And so the car in some countries, some areas, like if you're living way out in the great plains of Kansas... Have you ever been entrapped by space? Well, if you've ever been entrapped by sheer physical geography and space, you will recognize what that term freedom means related to a vehicle, wheels, that can give you uh, precedence over and give you victory over that fantastic prison of space. You know, you can be imprisoned just as much by wide areas as you can by a small circumcised room with bars. That's hard to believe, but <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, you, you, you know this when you've, when you've wandered across the Great Plains. You know this when you've, when you've spent any time in places like uh, the great vast wastes of certain parts of Missouri and Oklahoma. And you go to, you go to a place like, uh, like Israel, which I just got back from, and you recognize that the automobile, I mean, it's, it's, it's as much as a necessity really as a, as shoes or a, a drink of water. Else, the modern man would go out of his skull completely. I mean, he, he could not accept being totally circumscribed by this vast globe uh, kept down and, and held in. And so when you see uh, a movie, say, for example, like uh, Born Free, you, you recognize that relationship of man and machine where, where you can see that this machine gives them the freedom to move over this, this wilderness. And at the same time, it uh, it has become part of the wilderness. It's not a, it's not a uh, it's not a jewel or a bauble or a toy. Have you ever seen Have you ever seen a farmer in Michigan, for example, with his and I have many times a farmer in Michigan with his Model A uh, or with his uh, 
1947 Ford station wagon. It's totally, I mean, it's just completely covered with, with dust, this yellow dust, which has never, never once been washed off. The guy probably got the car secondhand in 1950, and since that time, it has not been washed down once except by heavy rains. And you recognize that this thing is not a, uh, uh, a luxury. It's not a toy. Uh, this thing is as important to his life, let's say, as the well is that pumps the water up out of the ground. And he treats it that way. Uh, they, they don't, uh, there's no sense of, uh, of uh, polishing it and getting it out and parking it in front of the farm making sure, you know, it's just in and out of this thing and banging in and out. And this is part of that fascinating machine-man relationship, which is not all entirely negative. Uh, oh, hey, we got a couple more. Speaking of this, we've got a couple more whoopies. Let's see, you've got the... Uh, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Hit hit the button, Don. You know, have you ever sat there and just daydreamed with your feet up, you know, and you've got a can of beer in your hand, and you're thinking of all the really great things that could happen to you? You know, like, um, oh, the secretary chases you around, your secretary, this fantastic secretary, and corners you on a couch. <laughs> you know what would happen? You'd get fired. That's right. Oh, yes. Have you ever, have you ever thought, you know, you go to the psychiatrist there, and he's got this fantastic wife, and the next thing you know, you've got her in a ripple bath. You know what would happen? He'd have you committed. You know, so I hid. If you'd like to see a guy that gets into all these hang-ups, it's Sean Connery, and it's in a fine madness. I would suggest you better get down and see this one. It's a fine madness in Technicolor. And oh, by the way, it'll teach you a lesson or two. Stay away from psychiatrists' wives. <laughs> uh, it starts tomorrow at RKO 58th, RKO 23rd, and the Forum 47th Street Theater. Speaking of that uh, slob, hit, hit the button there. Oh, is that all you got? Oh, we've got one more. Woolmouth. Shmoolmouth. Some guy sent me, now I don't know anything about this. Now, don't ask me. Now, now, wait. Let's stop right here before we go any further. Some guy sent me a photostat of a, of a uh, telegram he got that he, apparently he won a suit. I don't know anything about it from Wilmoth. He says, at last I'm Wilmoth from the yard wide now. And he says, I got this. Did you have anything to do with it? No, I did not. I know nothing about that. However, we do know about Wilmoth suits. And here's their note. It says, right now, for as little as $56, you can get yourself a tropical weight summer suit made to your measure with your choice of styling details, if you like those big, broad prison stripes, or if you like those big fan wing type uh, lapels, you know, that go all the way out around your shoulder, and if you get a good run, you can take right off the ground. They'll do it for you. Woolmouth's giant summer sale. Clothes made to your exact measure for as low as 56 simoleons. Okay? Woolmouth. W-O-H-L-M-U-T-H. Woolmouth. America's largest tailors. Right? That's a great phrase that you don't hear anymore, Somalian. You know, I heard a guy today say something. I'm afraid that our language is not as colorful as it used to be. It is not. I am sitting in an outdoor cafe down in the village, see, and this is about, uh, oh, 8 o'clock tonight. And I'm down there, and it's outdoors. You know, I got my sandals on. I got my, my, my angry look on, the whole scene of the, the hot air. Oh, what a, what a life. You know, I, I think New York is getting to be, I, I hate to say this, you know, it's, it's very hip today to put New York down. But seriously, I think New York is getting to be vaguely civilized now. 
No, it is showing signs that the more and more you can sit out, you know, outdoor cafes, you can sit out and eat without without six big Airedales coming over and chomping down on your cheeseburger, or guys looking over your shoulder while you're eating because they never saw anybody eat outside before. You know, they just come from uh, uh, from Christenberry, Iowa, where nobody ever eats outside. You hide the closet when you eat out there, you know, and, and they're amazed with people sitting out there and eating. And so it's getting a little bit more civilized. And I'm sitting in this outdoor cafe, and uh, the guy at the next table, and he's scoffing away, you know, he's pushing the stuff down his trap. And all of a sudden, these these two these two chicks go go by, and you know, wow, they go they go by. <laughs> he turns around, and you can see the the ketchup dripping from his from his chin. And he says, "Oh wow, oh boy, look at them bimbos." <laughs> Boy, what a what a couple of bimbos, and I and I and I'm you know I'm I'm sitting there quietly scopping my my uh, my uh, stuffed Russian beluga salmon whoopies or whatever it is I was eating, and I'm I, I thought to myself, boy, that's a great phrase. I haven't heard that phrase. That's the kind of thing my old man used to say. Boy, my old man used to say, what a couple of tootsies! Wow. And and, and uh, yeah, I used to. And my mother used to say, now stop. The kids are watching. Now, shh, stop it, will you? And, and he's looking out of the... Have you ever seen the driver drive down the street right in the middle of the outer drive and look out of the back window of his car? Well, that was my old man. And he kept saying, what a couple of bimbos, wow! Well, I think this is a great phrase. Bimbo, tootsie. I like, I like the... You know, the guy goes up and he says, there'll be two Somalians on number seven of the third, okay? Two Somalians, two frog skins. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's so much more colorful than bread. You know, Brett, I mean, I'll tell you, how, oh, do you, can you think of any other things that they used to, that you've heard applied to money? Two bananas. That'll be two bananas, Dad. Uh, let me see what else. Two bucks, two Somalians, two frog skins. Um, gee whiz. <laughs> Hi, any bimbos out there? Hey, it, is there a real bimbo out there listening right now? Is there a bimbo? I'd like to hear from somebody who admits that they're a bimbo. And knows that you're a bimbo. If you uh, give, give us a call here, I'd like to put that. Uh, do we have time for a bimbo call? Quick. Any bimbos out there? Hey. Eh? Any tootsies out there? <laughs> well, the old man used to alternate with, "Oh boy, did you see them two broads? Wow." That he would say, or "Oh, look at them tootsies! Hey, wow!" And my mother's sitting there, of course. She's an ex tootsie. She realizes that there must have been one time when she went past and he says to his friend Charlie, Hey, look at that Tootsie! Holy smokes, look at that bimbo! You know, and she says, Now, here, the kids are going to be hearing that. And I can remember one time sitting back, you know, hiding by the fence, and I'm with Bruner, and Pasco's Esther Jane Albury and Don Strickland, I say, Hey, Bruner, look at them two Tootsies, wow. <laughs> what, a, what a couple of bimbos! <laughs> Picked it up from the old man. You mean a bimbo is calling? Ah. Come on there. Ain't no bimbos listening tonight.